Well, good morning, Radiant. My name's Tom. I'm uh, one of the leaders here. It's a real joy to be here. And uh, if you have a Bible, could you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1? We are nearing the end of our series, um, looking at the question of, uh, of identity. I've been making the point every week that uh, from a very young age, it's very natural, inevitable, that you find yourself asking the question, who am I? And uh, it's, it's part of being human. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're a non-Christian, whatever, in one form or another from a young age, that is perhaps one of the greatest questions that we ever find ourselves asking ourselves. You may not have even realized that's what you've been doing, but I would humbly suggest it is. The challenge, of course, though, is, is that the world is only too quick to give us some answers. Labels galore, roll up, roll up, the world says. Here they are. And we buy into them, don't we? You get them through your family, through the, uh, I don't know, the culture that you grow up, the nation that you grow up, the environment you grow up, the school you went to. You, you end up answering that question of who am I by wearing labels, identity. I am the handsome one in my family. I am the intelligent one. I'm the stylish one. I'm the funny one. Whatever it might be. And the irony is that as you get older, this, this doesn't stop. You just find different labels. And the problem with it, of course, is, is, that, um, is that, number one, it leads to pride. Those moments in your life where you feel able to wear that label with pride. Or with, yeah, with pride. You, you actually have pride. You think, yes, I am the provider. My dad wasn't the provider, so I will wear that label because I'm relatively stable. And so you go through life with this subtle, unconscious pride. You are the provider, or whatever it might be. Pride is one danger. The other danger, of course, is despair. Because life inevitably throws you some curves, curveballs where suddenly you don't feel like, I'm going to be the husband that my dad wasn't to my mum. I'm going to be the perfect husband. Or I'm going to be the super dad. Or I'm going to be the best artist that's ever walked the streets of Visalia, or whatever it might be. And no matter how hard you try, guess what? For some reason, you don't feel able to wear that label. And what do you have? Well, you don't have pride, you have despair. Or condemnation is another way of putting the same thing. And so the natural human condition outside of Christ is this roller coaster of pride and despair, and pride and despair, and pride and despair. You pendulate. We pendulate between them. And the, the other thing, of course, that happens, no matter which state you're in, up or down, is you're just quietly exhausted the whole time. It's actually really, really tiring. And I promise you, there'll be some of you here, and you do know Jesus. You, do, you are a genuine Christian. But when I describe that, you really resonate with it, which kind of tells us that you're wearing a worldly label or identity far more than you may be aware of. If your life is marked by a quiet exhaustion, then I want to humbly call you to have ears to hear this morning. Because the great news is, the reason that this book is proclaimed all across the world, the reason that Christians do get very excited and jump around and spin like lunatics when we, when we sing songs, and we talk about this thing called the gospel, is good news, is it really, really is good news. Like, it's brilliant news, as an Englishman would say. It's splendid. It's amazing because one way of understanding the gospel is it gives you these incredible, glorious new labels, these identities that are more glorious, more wonderful, more secure, more life-changing, more life-affirming than any pathetic worldly label that you or I might be prone to go back to. And we've been looking at a really helpful, practical, visual table or chart, as you Americans would say, a chart. I'm trying to translate as I go. A chart that helps us understand the gospel and the appropriate way to read the Bible. The Bible presents the gospel in these four ways. It talks about who God is, God's label, God's identity. The Bible starts there. We have our own labels and our own questions. We will get there. But the Bible starts with actually that every human is designed to know Him, to have their eyes on Him. Who is God? What are His labels? 
And then inevitably, out of the character and the identity of God, the Scripture then proclaims again and again what God has done. His energy, His activity, even before you were born. Because God is good, God therefore sent His Son to die in our place on a cross. You get the idea. And then we get to the third box, which is really the labels box, not for God, but for us. So what is this? What is this good news? What is this wonderful news that has been heralded for 2,000 years? Well, that when you become a Christian, whether you felt it or not, whether you were some obvious terrible sinner who had a Damascus Road thing, or whether you were some little cute blondie, age five or whatever, and you're just like, you know, oh, I think I believe in Jesus. The Bible doesn't seem to, it just says, new birth is new birth. You know, it's this glorious, inclusive feel to it. And it says, you were given this amazing treasure trove of new labels. And the whole point of walking together as a family is that we learn together as a family, day by day, what our Father in heaven says about us now. Even if you've lived under so many labels that have caused pride and exhaustion, pride and despair all of your life, God wants to set us free. And so then we do get to box four the great passion of most of us activists, what we do, we do, we do get there. It's important. We need to, the Bible talks about how we live. But the weight of the Bible, the emphasis on the Bible, I would humbly suggest, is not simply on what we do. Give me some practical sermon, Tom. Well, there are things we do, but actually we focus on who God is, what God has done, and who he declares you to be. And if that sinks into your soul, you do live differently. But it's not by focusing on the doing, do you understand? Which is most of our uh, propensity uh, in life. So we've been looking at a few of these labels. Week one, we looked at the label of being holy, being a saint. And I was going to war on the subtle lie that we are sinners. And we struggle through life and we're just prone to sin. And we're, it's, a very, it's a very subtle lie. It's a very subtle lie. It sounds terribly holy. I'm just such, so rubbish. Well... The Bible, unfortunately, overwhelmingly declares you a saint, a holy one. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, I love this. Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, when they're getting into divisions, yeah, and following Paul and Apollos, he says to them, you're, you're acting as mere humans. I love that. Implication, you, you, if you're a Christian, you don't act as a mere human. Isn't that amazing? He's like, don't just act like a, a human. You're, you're supernatural now. You're different. God lives in you. You don't just act like a mere human. It's amazing. It's just not the way the Bible, we can't wriggle out of it that way. Have this humble life. No, no. We're going to find out today that is not the feel of the New Testament at all. God has died to establish something staggering. And we live in the light of that. So we're holy. Say holy. We are adopted. Say adopted. Today we're going to look at what it is to be redeemed. Say redeemed. Verse 3, chapter 1. Praise be. Paul is always going on about praise, just to say that. He's really, really clever. He's cleverer than you, all right? He wrote Romans, and that's a clever book. He also raised the dead. Oh, he was a man of the Word and the Spirit. He, he was an enthusiast, a worshiper. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? who has blessed us, not just Jesus, he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, not tweaked, holy and blameless. Staggering words. In his sight, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with Oh, with his pleasure. Say pleasure. Some of you have had parents that have never demonstrated their pleasure over you. And I'm really, really sorry. But I'm so thrilled to announce today that your Father in heaven took pleasure. He didn't just do what we're reading. He took pleasure. He, the Bible wants us to know the emotion of God before he made the universe. He took pleasure when he thought about what we're talking about today. Isn't that incredible? brought a smile to God's face to, to redeem you. I think it's good anyway. Um, where are we? 
with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's Jesus. In him, here we go, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with uh, the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will. You can know it now. It's not, it's not hidden anymore. It's known. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his, here we go again, his good pleasure. He's really into that. Which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, one leader, one authority, one boss, one hero, even Christ. Hallelujah. So, church, you are redeemed. If you know Jesus Christ today, even if you feel pretty wobbly and rubbish, the Bible says you are a saint, you're holy, you are an adopted child of God, and now he says to us, you have received redemption. What is redemption? I hear you cry. Redemption simply means to be set free from slavery at a price. To be set free from slavery at a price. Now, you've probably worked out that the Bible has a whole load of metaphors that help us understand what it is to be a Christian. So it's another metaphor. It's like we heard last week. Last week, many of you, when I said, you're adopted, and you were like, great, it's really good. I didn't know I need to be adopted, Tom. And then, do you remember, we started to look at what it was to be an orphan, and the room went very quiet. And a lot of you were like, where was that book? that you read out of with all the orphan stuff in it. What's that telling us? Is that so many of us as Christians, we live with exactly the same mindset as when we were before Christians, before we came to Christ. And actually, today, I want to say that you can be a slave and not realize it. Scary, isn't it? That's why Paul's writing to Christians. He's trying to say to them, listen, You are not a slave anymore. You really were a slave, but you're not a slave anymore. And we will never get excited about redemption unless we first of all taste a bit of slavery. What does it mean? How does it look for you or me to be a slave, even if I'd call myself a Christian? Well, let me demonstrate subtle slavery, okay? Some of you in this room will know what it's like to be dramatically enslaved, maybe to drugs or things that are very obvious. You know what it is to be enslaved. But many of us in the room would go, oh, I, no, I don't think that's really relevant for me. I don't feel like I've ever been a slave. But biblically, biblically you, you were before you came to Christ. And biblically, you are. If you don't know Christ today, the, the Bible would say you are actually enslaved. Let me demonstrate this. It's been said that there are four things that all humans ultimately crave and um, are designed to crave. But when we don't find our our intimacy with Christ, what happens is we crave these things outside of Christ and they enslave us. That makes sense? We think we are in control and we go after them and then they end up controlling us. Number one, control itself. There's nothing wrong with wanting control. You're designed to want and to need control. Jesus and the Bible clearly says that we are to desire self-control primarily. The challenge is, is that we're designed to have self-control by intimacy with Jesus, who is the most self-controlled. You see, it's through relationship with Him. But what we try and do before we're Christians and what we carry on into sometimes, despite now this free relationship, is we try and actually get control for control's sake. We seek after control. And therefore, our lives are actually marked by worry, anxiety, certainly not a lot of joy. And fear of the unknown is disproportionately terrifying. We can even find ourselves controlling anything we can. And when you feel control is taken away, you don't just go, oh, that's interesting. When those things that you can't control suddenly really are out of your control, it pushes a button of anger in you. That's a sign that you're actually needing something more than you realize. And we use, we use language that takes, oh, I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> You're a slave. <laughs> we are though, aren't we? You know, we might be in the body of a free man or woman, but actually if we are 
if, if, we can't, if we can't react to those times where God does take things out of our control without pushing a little button. Slavery through control. Second one is comfort. Comfort, pretty obvious to explain, but basically the seeking of pleasure and the absence of pain, not just, in, I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with wanting comfort or pleasure or the absence of pain, but we're designed to find our comfort actually now in a person under the kingship of Jesus. 2 Corinthians tells us he's the God of all comfort. But before we become Christians, what happens is we're seeking this because we're designed to have comfort. So we try and find it anywhere, right? We're trying to find it in our lives. And what happens is then we become Christians, but we're still in the old way of thinking. The old patterns control us, and we're basically still enslaved. And I would humbly say, if you don't think this is an issue, you're living in America in the 21st century. This is the wealthiest time in the entire of history. And you're in the wealthiest nation, and you're in California. So, get real. If you can't see this is a potential issue, that, put it this way, if you always anesthetize, I can't, any pain, you will stay enslaved. Pain is God's way of changing us. You, the spiritual disciplines and embracing the cross is what Jesus says, follow me. Pick up your cross. That's killing the old person. Killing the false self. Killing the old self. That is painful. Crucifixion is the analogy that we're called to follow in. And if you are just, don't have a metaphor or have a reference point for that, you will be enslaved. You won't do anything unless it's pain-free. Comfort is your God. Comfort is the one that really controls you. Third one is approval. Again, nothing, want, uh, nothing wrong rather with wanting to be approved. But as a Christian now, we are meant to be those that find our approval with our Father which meant to free us from needing approval. But before we're Christians, we inevitably try and fill that approval hole through people, through others. And what happens is, so often in our life, we still functionally live far more controlled by people than how God sees us. And we're, that's why Paul's saying in this letter, he's saying, don't be tossed to and fro. He's describing Tom Shaw when I'm not living in the good of this. Why are you tossed to and fro? You root it down somewhere, it will be nearly always about people. You know? Oh, I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> You're a slave. It controls you. Fourth thing is power. Again, you guys, you're, you're blessed to live here. I'm blessed to come from England. We're blessed nations. We've also got the blind spot of being economically, politically, socially, very powerful. It's intoxicating. It's the air we breathe. We're American. We're English. It's not bad. Wanting power is not bad. God gave power to Adam and Eve to tend the earth, but it was in relationship with him. And as Christians, we talk about power of the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing. Power of the gospel. The word power is not an evil, bad word. The problem is when we divorce it from relationship with God and we are therefore enslaved to power anyway. And what happens is when someone around you is promoted in the broad sense, so they have power, and you, there's something in you that just, that's a sign that you're not, you're not finding intimacy with God. You're actually after the power thing. Yeah, Man, I, I'm, in you, I'm with you in this. I can see it in my soul. So let me ask you the question. Am I being unrealistic? Am I just describing these four things, these enslavements? And, and we're all just going, some of you are going, Tom, you're just such an idealist. We're always going to struggle with that. Well, can I say this? Did Jesus struggle with these enslavements? He didn't, did he? Think about it. Was Jesus, was Jesus enslaved to needing approval? And to being powerful? And to having comfort? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Doesn't have a good pension plan. Doesn't have a nice house in Visalia. He had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was radically free. The freest man that ever walked planet Earth. He was radically free from any of those very subtle enslavements that all of us at times can unconsciously just go back to. We just live there. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I do love Jesus. 
but we can, we're not actually living free. And Jesus, I believe with all my heart, he didn't just come just to forgive us. He came to give us eternal life. That's not just long life. That's vibrant, glorious, incredible life. It should be said about you by people who know you. He is so different a year on. Two years on, five years on, there is such a tangible change. There's challenges, there's setbacks, but there's something happening in her that's just not of this world. She is becoming like Jesus. Do you understand? The Bible doesn't lower the standard. It says grace teaches us to say no. The grace of God has appeared and it teaches us to say no to the old way. Grace doesn't lower the standard. Grace actually hires the standard. Grace is power to live. It's amazing. Hallelujah. I know you're celebrating in your hearts. There is such good news. There really is. It's glorious. So let me then say, okay, so hopefully you're slightly, good, in a good way, concerned that you might be a bit more of a slave than you realized five minutes ago. <laughs> so number two then, what is redemption? Let's go back to that question. Why is redemption important? Why did Jesus come and why does the Bible Help us to understand our condition pre and post conversion with this word, redemption. Well, turn with me to Galatians and chapter 4, just back a couple of pages. This is one of many examples. First 8 of chapter 4. Paul writing to a church just like this one. Loved Jesus, knew Jesus, but guess what? They come back under a type of enslavement. The enslavement is probably very different to the ones that we struggle with. But it doesn't matter. It was still living as his slaves rather than as redeemed ones. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who are by nature not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. <laughs> Tough words from Paul. Come on, Paul, just be honest. I've wasted my time on you lot. You're rubbish. No, no, no. He's in compassion, challenging them. But what he's frustrated at is he understands their identity. Do you understand? He's like, what's happened is they have been um, seduced by some Jewish Christians who have come into their ranks and they're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is about, you know, Jesus. It's about the, the, the identity that you get plus a little bit of box four. Just a little bit of box four. And in this case, because we are Jewish Christians, you know, Christianity really is a branch of Judaism. And, you, you know, you, Jesus was a Jew, and you need to really get into the whole Jewish thing. And uh, you need to observe certain festivals and days and months of the year. And uh, men, you need to be circumcised. Okay? That will show that you're really specially holy. And now we might go, what on earth? How the heck did they get persuaded by that? That is not very appealing. I am not tempted by that, Tom to be circumcised. I am tempted by many things in my life. That is not one of them. <laughs> but actually, I love it. The Bible is so brilliant. You think about this. Imagine these people. They're very like holy, okay? Really what's happening, these young believers are like believing that they need to do stuff to ultimately feel powerful, to be approved by these Jewish Christians, to feel kind of in control. See, it's no different. It's no different at all from the things that you or I struggle with. It's just a different set of illustrations. Redemption, then, is based on perhaps the greatest story of redemption in the whole Bible, right near the beginning of the Bible, Exodus. It's an incredible book, and it talks about the great story of Israel, an entire nation coming under slavery. God allows them to come under slavery for four hundred years. And the story of Exodus, and if you read it, it's, 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 it's a big book. And I think, why is it so detailed about the process of getting free? You know, it's like it tells us about the man, Moses, and then the fact that, you know, he had to then do the will of the Father. And he didn't want to do it, but he did do it. He submitted to the will of the Father. And then he had to go to Pharaoh, not once or twice, but ten times. He had to go back to the, the slave master. And when I read this story, 
the real power of this story is because it's a, it's a picture of the great exodus. It's a picture of redemption for you and I. Moses is a type of Christ. When we look at one man who worked really hard for a whole nation that had had horrible, terrible slavery for hundreds of years because of Moses' obedience, an entire nation was set free. And that's a glorious picture of our Jesus. Hallelujah. When he went to the cross, when he went to Calvary, he was purchasing for you and I glorious eternal redemption, not out of a nation, but out of a state of bondage, out of a state of slavery that is way, way worse than what Israel was in. And you read this story, and, and it's amazing. And it, and it forms this bedrock of understanding of, of what redemption would have meant for the Jewish people, for the church that he's writing to here, and for us today. Turn in your Bibles with me to another passage which talks about redemption in Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. Paul here, uh, writing to Titus, who's a leader, um, and he's based in a place called Crete, uh, which is in the Middle East, um, uh, in the uh, Mediterranean, rather. And uh, he says this, he uses the same idea in verse 13 at the end of it, into verse 14 of chapter 2. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So again, for Paul, this idea of redemption was really, really central. I know it's an unusual idea. We're not used to talking about redemption. But I actually find the idea of being enslaved very, very helpful. It does resonate with me. When I think about the subtle slip back into old ways of living, it really helps me to actually see it in that stark way. And I would, I would want to humbly submit there is a wisdom in using these terms that should shock you and me to say, wait a minute, that, I don't want to live as a slave. I want the freedom that Jesus demonstrated and Jesus offered. That is what he wants proclaimed throughout Visalia and Hanford and the whole of this area. He doesn't want a church that is simply giving a little bit of the gospel. He wants a church that is living in the reality of genuine, radical, glorious change. That's what he wants. So I want to finish by asking the question again, what does redemption mean? But I want to, I want to ask, what does it really practically mean for you and me? Because we've probably heard some of this stuff before in our heads. Yeah, the story of the slavery, we get that, Tom. But I don't walk around punching the air with joy saying, oh, I'm redeemed. I'm just a redeemed one. How does it actually land in our lives tomorrow morning when you get up and you start the rest of your week? And I just want to be really personal to my own journey with this particular label, being a redeemed one. And so let's look at one of those four things that we all struggle with at times, that of approval, okay? How has redemption and being a redeemed one begun to set me free from needing people's approval, coming under fear of man, coming under intimidation? And there's two things I just want to briefly mention before we finish about redemption and being redeemed that I think I'd missed and I think is really important that might help. Number one, to be a redeemed one means that you now belong to someone. You actually belong to someone. And number two, to be redeemed means that you are now bold. Bold. Your identity is as a bold one, as well as someone who belongs to someone else. So notice with me here, look back to the Titus passage. Look at the way that um, Paul phrases by the Holy Spirit what it is to be redeemed. He says, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Here we go. And to purify for himself a people it says the same thing again that are his very own redemption i think starts to change us and melt our hearts and bring security where there's insecurity when we realize redemption is not so much about escaping running away from sin and bondage although that's part of it it's not just getting out of egypt in a way, the greater emphasis is not getting away from something, but is now being drawn into someone. You see, the, the story of Exodus is about getting out of, is out of Egypt, 
But the great emphasis is actually on where they're going and who they're going with. You see, one commentator has said that when we view even that middle bit, where they, you know, Moses goes up the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments, we interpret that and we go, oh yeah, that's like where it gets all serious and you've got, to mark, you know, you've got to perform well enough. Whereas actually, this is a better way of understanding it, this is actually, this is, this is like getting ready for a marriage. Is that God has been preparing his bride. He's done everything. He's done everything. And now he's saying, come up, come away with me. Let's get our marriage vows ready. You see, there's no doubt about it that God has committed himself to Israel despite all of their failings and their faults. He's done everything. There's nothing that they've done apart from be needy and follow their guy Moses, who ultimately, as we said, was a type of Christ. And in the same way, the way that God wants to free us from living in that box for exhausting, me-centered living is by saying it's always been about him. It's always been about God who wants to redeem a people for himself, for himself. Now, this is really important when this starts to actually sink in because every human wants to belong. You do, we all want to belong. You do. Even if you're a big, burly man, I would say in the heart of every child, there is this deep yearning for security and a sense of wholeness and a sense of I'm home. I, I'm, I belong somewhere. It's in all of us. And the great tragedy is, is that, particularly for Christians, it's even a greater tragedy. Because we now belong to him. He's, he's hung on a cross for you and me. He has demonstrated beyond comprehension a commitment to your relationship with him that no, no human can even get close to. How, I mean, it's embarrassing that I allow my heart, I give my heart, my old self. I'm so hardwired to think I need approval, so I will, I'll give that, I'll, I'll try and find it here, or here, or here. I will try, there we go, there's my heart, my most precious tender thing, and I'm subtly controlled by how you treat me. Isn't that true? That's what we do. It's absolutely pervasive, and, and all the time the Lord's saying, no, 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 you're mine. You now belong to me. And for some of you here today, many of us, the Lord is wanting to show that we, you may have been a Christian for a while, but you may still be living in that place of actually you're tossed to and fro. You're far more controlled by what other people think about you. And today, he wants to bring freedom. And the glorious news is it doesn't have to be this long, protracted, drawn-out thing of like, oh, I need to go to counseling and everything. So it can just be like, boom, he shows you it. You're mine. You're mine. Your label is you're, you're mine. Your label is you're not a teacher, Danny can tell me. You're not a teacher. You're doing a role, and I'm sure you're very good, my friend. You're not a dad. You're not a husband. You're not a provider. You're mine, says the Lord. You belong to me, and I'm getting heaven ready for when you come. I can't wait to meet you face to face and your faith to be replaced by sight. It's all going to happen, and nothing can separate you now from the love of God. Hallelujah. Push off those labels. Push them off. I haven't got time to do that over. All of you, you understand what I'm saying. You belong to him, and there's a jealousy, a holy jealousy, that he is coming after you. He will not let your heart be given to another. And there's a militancy, he wants to say, this is serious. If a husband's heart starts to wander, whoa! Get him up against a wall. This is serious. Don't you go down that line. That's the feel of this. He adores you. He shouldn't do, but he does. He's so for you. He gave Jesus, his beautiful son. I wouldn't let anyone touch Daisy, Lily, or Poppy if they gave me all the money in the world. I would gladly die rather than anything happen to them. And I really mean that. And our Father, he's given everything. So that this day, on whatever the date is, the 28th of January in Visalia, you can sit here and taste eternal life. You can know that you belong to the Father as much as Jesus belongs to the Father. Hallelujah! By the grace of Jesus, you are as righteous as Jesus. He has taken your sin and your shame and he has given you his righteousness. Not a kind of righteousness. Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. The peace of God. 
Because you belong to him. Jesus had peace. He didn't have to try. He didn't have to work hard. He didn't have to do anything. He was as loved taking a nap as he was raising the dead. Hallelujah. I'll say that again. He was as loved taking a nap as he was raising the dead. That's good, Tom. Thank you. Come on. It frees you from performing. Even if you're humanly a wally. You have that phrase here? No, you don't, do you? I don't know. A, a nincompoop. I don't know. A fool or whatever. Gosh, I'm getting worse. But even if you never have human affirmation and you know Christ, it's all changed. And he wants to break off fear in your life. Man, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It is, it is from beginning to end. And often, well, I don't know why I'm not joyful. I can't get it. I can't get it. I'm just plagued with fear. But I just want to be joyful. I Turn around. You don't get joy by looking at joy. You get joy by kicking fear in the head. And you say, I will believe who I am in Christ. And all that Christ has now is given to me. <laughs> I can't believe I can say that. It's Bonkersville. It's crazy. Forget Farmersville. It's Bonkersville. You know, it's, it's, it's the gospel is so big. It's so magnificent. Oh, it's glorious. It frees you. It frees you to just... Be average on your own way and be spectacular because of Christ in you. You're both. You are both. I, I had a tiny taste of this. I just, uh, <laughs> I was on a plane a few weeks ago going to this conference and I, um, in England we had these things called bobble hats. Someone texted me after the first meeting and said, what's a bubble hat? That's a bobble hat. It's a, it's a woolen hat with a bobble on top. Doesn't worry about it. It's a hat basically. And it was cold and I was wearing a hat. And I got on the plane and uh, I was sitting there. And I suddenly thought, oh, gosh, I've got my hat on. And everyone else has sort of got, you know, got into sort of flying attire, taking their coats off and everything. And I was sitting there with my big bubble hat on. And I, just, I was just having a moment of just enjoying my dad in heaven. I thought, do you know what? I'm actually quite chilly. I'm going to leave it on. I don't care what people think. And I just was sitting there, like, chortling to myself, thinking, this is victory. This is a tiny, silly thing, but it is victory for me because I'm such a people pleaser by nature. Do you understand? When it's a tiny thing, me sitting on a, in an over air-conditioned plane, chortling because I know I'm beginning to get it. Age 40, I've got gray hairs, and I'm starting to begin to get it, that I am loved by God. I am accepted by God, and that changes everything. It changes everything. And it also makes us bold. And with this, I'll finish. You belong to God and you know you're His, which gives you security. You can stop trying. You can embrace obscurity. You don't have to be the best. You can be a team player. You don't have to be in the middle. You can just be His son or daughter. And it's not just, it's glorious. Hallelujah. You can be secure. Don't you want security? Security, me? You can just be secure. But more than just secure, it means you become bold. Look at the words. I love these words to Titus. He said, you, he said in two different ways, you belong to God now. He's redeemed you. Don't ever give your heart to others, ultimately. You know, guard your heart, he's saying. Don't close it, but just guard it. Be careful. Give your heart wholeheartedly to him. Guard it horizontally. He says this, and then it's like he's saying, oh, you belong, Titus, to God. It's this sort of gooey language. It's glorious. He's done everything for you. And then, boom, verse 15. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage, rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. You're like, what the heck happened there? I was, you know, feeling the love, the romance of me and the Father. And it's like, oh, okay. Do you see there's this kind of transition? Vertical affirmation and security leads into horizontal confidence. You see it through the book of Hebrews. He talks about being redeemed, redeemed. And then it starts saying, have confidence with God. And then you get to 11 and 12 where he's like, these are the men and women of faith who did mighty things horizontally in the human realm because vertically they knew that they were securing God. Your security in God is what makes you bold. It is not your personality. That is huge for some of you because you're discounting this. If you only knew what I was like humanly as, as just me, I, preaching and getting up in front of anyone is my worst nightmare. But this is worthy of pushing through fear and saying, Lord, if anyone will listen, I'll speak about it because it's amazing. See, God wants to raise up an army. I was with one brother recently this week called Mike. I don't know if you're here, Mike. But he, uh, there he is. And uh, he, he, see, I'd been living under intimidation. I'd found it creeping into my life over the last few weeks. 
I think it was through partly through the place, just America's big. <laughs> it was intimidating for a little Englishman. Big houses, big cars, big roads, big mountains, everything's big. And I felt intimidated. I think some of the problems, you know, talking to people about their lives and the terrible addictions and abuse were just weighing on me. And uh, my kids having what's called like a code black gun practice massacre thing where you basically you practice as if there's a gunman in your school. And my kids came home like, Dad, there was a gunman at our school. I was like, what? Tell me you're joking. And they hadn't realized it wasn't real. And, and when you're an Englishman who's used to like, you know, like, it's just very different. Let's just say that. It's, you know, really different. And I'm like, you know, every night, closing the doors, locking the doors. Fear is, is coming in. And also, not just through those sources, but people. I found myself intimidated by certain people. And the spirit of fear is not a logical thing. It's a spirit. It talks, it's a spirit of the age. It's not about your head. You know, I can't understand why I'm fearful about these things. It's not about thinking yourself out of it. It comes and it attacks the spirit within you. And if you're a rationalist like me, you think all things rational are what I believe, that's not Christianity. Actually, it is, involves our minds, but it's also we are spiritual beings as well. There are some things that our little brains struggle to understand, but they're very, very real. So I've been living under the spirit of fear. Um, and uh, Mike said last week to Tom, I've got a word for you. I want to meet you tomorrow. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And he turns up, and, he, and he, I hadn't said anything to him, and he just gave me a piece of paper. He said, I just felt this for you. And it just said on the top, intimidation. Kid you not. Intimidation. And he said, every time, God's saying to you, every time you feel intimidation, it is an invitation to know the power of God. You look through the whole Bible, every single man and woman who were moved by God had to push through intimidation, inviting God's power, and boom, the miraculous was released. Every day this week, started on Monday with Mike, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every single day this week, someone has brought it up. That's not an exaggeration, I promise you. I mean, that is extraordinary. God is wanting to break something in this church. Hallelujah. Not just for your benefit, for the benefit of this city and this county and this state. Because when we live under a spirit of intimidation, we, we actually, there's so many gifts in this room. What happens is Paul's saying to Timothy, in fact, turn to uh, Timothy quickly with me. We're running out of time, but I've got to get, keep going. To Timothy, he says this. For this reason, chapter 1, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Do you see that he's saying you have gifts? You have gifts in this room. You have gifts. If you know Jesus Christ, each of you has gifts. Not a few of you, all of you. I don't know who you are. You have a gift if you know Jesus. There are gifts in this room, in this church, and some of them, many of them are dormant. That's what he's saying. They've gone to sleep because of fear. You may not even realize that. If it happened to Timothy, it can happen to us, right? They go to sleep. And he's saying, stir it up. God has not given you a spirit of timidity and fear, a fear of failure, a fear of man. He has given you a spirit of power. And I would love to go around this room and start to call out each of you the gifts that God sees in you. And I, I, I don't know you well enough to do that. You could go terribly wrong. But <laughs> the Spirit is in me telling me to tell this to you. It's really, really exciting. It's a bit scary, but it's great. Okay? It's, it's, he's, you have not been given a spirit of fear. And there is a boldness that I have seen rushing back into my being. As soon as I saw this lying, fearful thing coming into me, and I could see, feel myself diminishing, I thought, no, that is not going to be. That's not who I am. As Mike said, I love this. We are saved by the lamb, but we walk with the lion. Hallelujah. You can say that with me. One, two, three. We're saved by the lamb. We walk with the lion. I love that. That is a fridge magnet. That is, <laughs> boom, I'm taking that. It is true though, isn't it? He saved us through his righteousness, but we walk with the confidence of Christ. Christ did not give in to fear. He did not give in to intimidation. And that was important because our identity flowed out of it. So let me just land with some very specific, very quick Tommy Shaw examples of what this looks like in my life. It might help land this finally before we finish. What does it look like for me to grow into being a bit more like the lion, not the lamb, rather than the lamb in this sense? Number one, should come up here, I can challenge people. How are you challenging people? My old Tom Shaw self, 
that was enslaved to approval of people, it was like this crushing, I mean, if I had to, if I had to challenge someone, it would just weigh on me. But I have found in my life, more and more, I am able to do this. And some of you here, actually, there's like a gift in you to do it really well. It's like you haven't been doing it. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 rise up. Larry, you, you're a great encourager. But the Lord is saying to you, it is time to be ready as an elder of this church to lovingly, at times, challenge. And you'll do it with a smile. You'll smell great. You'll be great. <laughs> and people will feel loved by you. Don't fear it. It is for you. There is a sense, and I see it myself. There's times where I've challenged, I challenged this guy who led this massive church in England. I just said, do you know what? I felt myself, I was fearful when I was in your team meeting. I was fearful of you, and I think your team might be unconsciously a bit fearful of disagreeing with you. And he didn't get angry. He said, you're not the first person to say that. Thank you. I think I, think I need to hear that. Challenge people. Number two, encourage people. One of the reasons the dormant church is so dormant is because our own self-confidence, where we put our self, it might not be that great because my box for life is rubbish. Whereas when we, I'm holy, woo, I'm a saint, woo, I'm a child of God. I am set free, I am redeemed. That means I can go up to any man, woman and child and boldly encourage them. I think that's good. Don't, come on, don't you want that over this church? You can't get out from a Sunday without being encouraged by someone. And not some kind of, you know, fluffy thing, but a real heartfelt, this is how God sees you. You're about to go back into a world that will lie to you and will discourage you. He is the father of lies. This church, we need to have a military view on this. You cannot be passive. He is the encourager. The enemy is the discourager. We must resist discouragement like we would resist sin. No, Lord, encourage me. That is what I see in my heart when God is... Leading me in freedom on this. Thirdly, I can ignore tantrums. As a leader, you meet lots of people with tantrums. Sorry if you've had a tantrum and you're getting cross with me now. But um, it's just people get frustrated that they haven't had the thing that they thought they were going to have, the role, the position. And just like children, we have a tantrum. And one of the, th- <laughs> one of the things I've learned is when I'm walking in boldness rather than being controlled by the people is actually to ignore it. It's the most loving thing you can do to a child. It's just to ignore it. You want my attention? I get that. I get that, Poppy. But not today, my love. I'm just going to ignore you. You can have a little, you know. And actually, one of the things, some of you in your life, you have parents that have tantrums. And they're elderly. And they still control you. They are passively aggressive, and that's their tantrum. They withdraw their affection when you don't go and visit them. That's not godly. You have limits. Okay? It's very subtle. And you say, not today. Not today. My conscience is clear. I'm not doing this to aggravate you, but it's not kind of me to pander to your tantrum. Either active or passive aggression. F- uh, fifthly, sorry, fourthly, honest to people who have intimidated me. I had a victory moment uh, a couple of Christmas ago where there was someone in my life I'd known from a young age, and I just had this moment in the car. Uh, he was a very violent man. Uh, he'd put a lot of people in hospital, but he was a good friend of mine. And uh, I just found myself saying to him, you used to really intimidate me, but you don't anymore. And for me, that might sound like a small thing, but I tell you what, I was walking with the line. In my own way, I was walking with the line. I was able to say that. Fifthly, bold to forgive. Interesting, forgiveness is actually sometimes connected with this. You see, if you have empowered people, if you've given your heart, yeah, rather than to Jesus, you've really given your heart to your dad, your mum, your brother, your wife, or whoever, in an unhelpful way, you empower them to hurt you more than they should be able to. Sometimes forgiveness is, is actually rooted in us as well as the person who's hurt us. And you see, when you start to walk in that freedom of, no, 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 he is my security. I put all my hope on him who can bear that weight. What happens is we, we, we love people healthily rather than needing them and worshipping them. I had a, a situation where there was a, an older gentleman in the church in England who had been my best friend. And then over time, he started to pass, passively aggress aggress and pull away his affirmation until he publicly opposed us as an eldership at a family meeting. Huge spirit of fear swept on the back of what he was saying. For weeks, me and Josie were praying in the spirit. And one time, Josie came out to my study and was just gripped with fear. We had the newspapers uh, saying stuff about us. Just a season where everything was coming in. Fear, 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 fear. And we were in the day of evil, we were just standing with our little shield of faith. And it was this stuff, totally. And then, uh, so this guy really hurt me. Um, I'd given him a lot of time. And then God showed me that it was actually 
my idolatry of him. I wanted him to affirm me that had empowered him to hurt me. Does that make sense? And I just suddenly looked, he just broke. I was like, what am I doing? He's just a guy. He's gone to glory now. You know, he's not even around. And I remember God broke something in me. And the very next day, I was walking down the high street in Canterbury. And he said to me, you're about to see him. Get ready. And this was a guy, you know, there's people in your life. And you, when you hear their name, like, oh! I don't know if you've ever had that. You're like, ah. Oh. And I felt that come in. I was like, get out of the way. No. And I saw him. I was like, hey, good to see you, brother. And I meant every word. Because it had just been broken in me. I said, how is that new church you're going to? I'm so pleased. And, and I could tell he had no reference point for what was going on. He expected anger and frustration because he'd really not been great. And there was nothing but love for him in me because my love was now coming from someone different. Sixthly, almost there, don't worry, calm in the presence of angry people. That's a kind of boldness, isn't it? You're around, you're around people who get angry. There was one very angry person uh, in my life, and I remember when God was starting to deal with this uh, a few years ago, <laughs> I was going to go and see them. And I, I honestly, I know this is probably the terrible prayer, but I found myself saying, God, would you just let them get angry? Just let them kick off as they used to. Um, because I want to see how I do now. <laughs> Seriously. That's, and he did. He answered my prayer. Something was minorly wrong with the situation, and he had a huge great tantrum, got really angry, and the, the peace of God. I was like a different person. I was just, and this is what I just said to him. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it, that you're having that very emotional reaction to, to that very small thing. And it just it popped, this bubble of anger. You know, like, uh, yeah, I suppose it is, really. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't angry about it. I just, you can't hurt me. You cannot hurt me. You could even physically hit me, and you can't hurt me. I'm his. I'm with him. And I'm walking with the lamb, with, with the lion. <laughs> i stop using that analogy. Um, two more. I can stop gushing. My old self, <laughs> still slip into it sometimes, because I am an enthusiast. But to me, I know my heart of hearts, I can overpraise, you know? Because I, I want that person to secretly just love me back. I don't need to do that anymore. I don't. I can love in a way that's real. I can say it and then move on, because love doesn't gush in that way always, in that way. It can do. God's very emotional, but you know what I'm saying. Finally, I can be myself and just be free to be me. And we don't have to pretend. We don't have to try and be someone else. And let me give you a silly illustration just to finish, just to show you that of what I kind of mean. I was at a uh, 20s conference called Mobilize in the Midwest a few, <laughs> few weeks ago, and uh, I'd flown over there you know, quite a long day traveling, and I was getting ready to do the first session in the evening. And I was just about to go down from my hotel room, and I suddenly realized, oh, I hadn't actually changed my clothes. You know, and I'm like the speaker. And I was just about to kind of whip my, my, my top off and uh, put, put a shirt on, and I just, I just thought, I can't be bothered. I just can't be bothered to do that. Do you know what? I'm just going to go as I am. I mean, don't worry, I wasn't smelly, okay? I was fresh as a daisy, but I just thought, I don't need to. For me, there, when I do that, in the part, it's been out of fear. It's been a subtle, small behavioral thing that makes me feel like I need to, you know, improves my chances of acceptance. And I felt the Lord say, you just don't need to do it. Go and bless them, do your best, and then keep it. My life is now about enjoying God. And I'll speak, or I'll do something, and then I, you know, it's just, it doesn't, it's not as weighed by these things that would, would weigh and control me. And if it goes well, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning to be rooted and established. It's wonderful. Does that make sense? So that actually, then you can love properly rather than idolizing and being controlled.